Coming up this hour, Hamilton was on this weekend. We're going to talk a little bit about how Hamilton mirrors the gospel. And then we're going to talk about mental health and the coronavirus. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, Real fast, remember, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us online at 1160hope.com and our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, Mr. Simpkins, I'm hoping that today you are not sitting out in the treehouse because it is a scorcher out there today. No, I'm actually uh, sitting in a sauna right now while we do this. Yeah, that might be cooler than it is outside right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's true. But yeah, it's, it, is, it is warm. I'm not going to lie. Uh, how was the 4th of July for the Simpkins family? Did you guys do anything out of the ordinary and fun? Well, we had uh, someone set off fireworks in our little back alley at midnight the day oh. before. So that's how, we, that's how we kicked off the day. At uh, twelve oh three a.m., that was that was a lot of fun. And the two days before that, actually, but they came back the next day and cleaned up the garbage, so that was nice. That was kind um, of fun. We uh, yeah went for a family walk one of the days. Regretted that immediately. That was a poor choice. It was so <laughs> so hot, and the walk was far too long for that kind of. It was at the end of the walk too, and there were some people from community um, <laughs> sitting outside, and I said, "Yeah, we like to." Like to walk and get some exercise, and they're like, "Yeah, looks like you got some exercise." And I'm like, just drenched in sweat. <laughs> I'm like, "Cool, good, good talk." I gotta go now. I gotta go pass out. But yeah, yeah we just, we just had a, a lazy day, and you know, ate pizza on the back deck, and it was that's great. Lovely. How about you guys? Yeah, we had a, a bunch of my wife's family and their and their kids over, my nieces and nephews. So that was a ton of fun. Filled up the inflatable pool in the backyard, and but like you. There were at one point, there were so many fireworks going off in my neighborhood that uh, I've never been in a war zone. But, man, did it kind of feel like when you're watching a war movie, at least. Hmm. And it just it was unreal. I'm like, how much money did these neighbors of mine spend on fireworks? Uh, And uh, it it did go for a while. But, yeah, it was fun. It was uh, Fourth of July. It was fun. Although I did tell you last week, this was week three where we've been offering at our church. Uh, church still virtually, but then also in our parking lot. Uh, it was brutal this really? past Sunday <laughs> in the parking lot. Maybe was a bad choice. Sermon was that bad? Oh it, uh, no, there was no chance anybody listened to anything I said because <laughs> it was that <laughs> hot. I had this moment of like, you got to talk faster. You better talk faster. <laughs> yeah, I've had a couple uh, of weddings like that, outdoor weddings, where I'm like reading the room. I'm like, all right, what parts of this can I cut on the fly? Because this is oh man, this is way too long. It was really hard. Well, speaking of America and uh, the furthering <laughs> of our democracy, I did want to start with uh, Kanye West. Uh, Kanye West is now thrown his his hat into the ring. He tweeted this weekend that he is running for president. Uh, I'm curious, uh, were you surprised? And what does Kanye West need to do to get Ian Simpkins vote? That's what I'm wondering. Uh, one, I'm not surprised by anything anymore. Two, he already has my vote. So thank you for asking. Me. <laughs> He's got it locked in. <laughs> yeah, it, was, uh, it was not that hard. 
I did see all the articles and they came out about how, like, I think I'm right about this, how impossible it's almost for him to get on the ballots. <laughs> and you're like, okay, yeah. I'm going to tweet out that I'm running for president as well. <laughs> yeah, why not? I did. It does look like the Babylon Bee has already weighed in. I'll let you all find out for yourself what those headlines read. But uh, yeah, everyone seems to be talking about it. The Babylon Bee has been uh, uh, I, I've needed to avoid the Babylon Bee as of late. They have uh, I almost said push the envelope, but they've gone. Uh, they, they've they're almost to be avoided right now, I think, uh, lately. So but I will. Yeah. I'll see what they said about Kanye. Touche. Uh so the other big thing besides the 4th of July this weekend on the 3rd of July, uh, Disney Plus released Hamilton uh, for it, they turned one of the theatrical performances. I believe it was from 2016. The original cast, Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, as Hamilton. Uh, and they turned it into a movie. So they just filmed it in it. Uh, so my family watched it, I believe, on Saturday. And it was phenomenal. And I put it in here for you and I to talk about. There's been some great articles about how Hamilton has some scriptural overtones to it. And then right before we came on, I said, hey, I probably should have asked you, have you ever seen Hamilton? And how did you answer that question? I have not. I have not seen Hamilton. We do not have Disney Plus. At that point, I went, oh, okay. (laughs) You you asked it kind of like a throwaway. Like, I'm sure you have. But uh, just to make sure you've uh, seen this, right? I'm like, no. Well, and we're live. You just go, nope. And three, two, one. (laughs) Uh, So I am wondering, though, here, let's ask the question this way. I'm guessing, though, many people on your Facebook, Twitter, whatever other feeds you have, not only have seen Hamilton, but we're talking about it this weekend. Is that safe to say? I actually have my filters up so that I can't see anything Hamilton related uh, until I watch it. Smart, smart. I did. One of my children said that Disney Plus had a free trial going and they shut it down uh, because so many people had waited to get the uh, free trial until Hamilton came out. Right. I know a lot of people that were doing that. There were all these people. So there were my family. Like I said, my wife and I had the great pleasure. I I bought uh, Hamilton tickets two years ago when it was in Chicago. Uh, for her and I to go see it for her. Uh, no, that was a Christmas present. So we saw it in February and uh, it was unbelievable, unbelievable. And then so my family watched it again this weekend because having kids, we do have Disney Plus in the house. And uh, again, it was so good. And it reminded me uh, of why it is such a cultural phenomenon. Like Hamilton, almost maybe more than any musical, at least in recent memory, is just a complete cultural phenomenon. Uh, and and I think part of it is because it's so different, right? All of it's set in uh, with hip hop and spoken word. Uh, but it's also just some of the... Um, some of the storylines just resonate so much. And there's one that I want to touch on and you can weigh in on this, never having seen it anyway. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's this concept. Hamilton sings this famous song that he's not going to throw away his shot. It's kind of the line of, uh, of the play of the musical. He's not going to throw away his shot. And many people have gone on. There's uh, we posted a bunch of articles at our Facebook page about the biblical themes in Hamilton and this concept of going, I'm going to make something of myself. I'm not going to throw away my shot. I've got one life to live uh, is kind of the theme that runs through here. And uh, I'm curious how you would react to that is, do you find that to be a biblical concept or do you find that to be a dangerous concept, kind of a too much pressure that we put on ourselves this, I'm going to make something of my life with this one uh, shot that I have at it. 
Uh, I mean, that's tricky, man, because, you know, Jesus is pretty famous for saying, do you want to be great? Become the least. Do you want to be first? Go last. You know, so I think it's from Catcher in the Rye, actually, where it says the the mark of an immature man is that he wants to die nobly for a cause, but the mark of a mature man is that he wants to live humbly for one. So I get why, you know, why it's why it's so inspiring. And I think that it is inspiring. I think it is something that is worth uh, working towards. But I guess within some kind of biblical understanding that it's not about me building my name or my brand or whatever the modern language around that notion would be. I think there there is sometimes a, a hyper temptation to make the sole emphasis of our lives kind of the tap the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like my self-actualization when it looks like the kingdom of the kingdom of God looks very different than that. So yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm a little torn because I have talked a good deal even on this show about since having kids, that being a real interesting kind of barometer for me and wanting to be able to look at my kids five, 10, 15 years from now and with integrity tell them like I was tempted to do this or go that go there or say this, but I didn't. And uh, I think that's part of it, part of wanting to, you know, not miss your shot. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm torn on that one. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, I, it's inspiring, but sometimes it can be too much pressure, <laughs> right? Like uh, it's kind of like when we're in youth, youth ministry, we're always talking about change the world, you can change the world. And sometimes, you know, you, you have to just take the foot off the gas a little bit and not put that sort of pressure. But uh, Hamilton does live up to it, but it's an amazing story of failure, uh, of uh, making something of yourself, but also the story of forgiveness and his wife. There's a Christianity Today article about it that I would encourage you to look at at our Facebook page that speaks of the faith and the amazing difference that Hamilton's wife makes in her 97 years of life. Uh, that's up at our Facebook page. Well, coming up next here uh, on The Common Good, we're going to look at a story in Christianity Today uh, about some ugliness that went on on a particular Facebook uh, page recently. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Monday afternoon. Uh, as a reminder, you can find us all sorts of different places. Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. It's there that you can find articles that we've discussed. You can find old interviews, uh, lots of different conversations going on on our Facebook page. Also, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online at 1160hope.com. And as always, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we are grateful for many of you who podcast. I was talking to someone at church just yesterday and they said, hey, I've been catching up on the podcast. And I'm always like, oh, that makes me really happy. So uh, thankful for those of you who do podcast. It's part of Ian's 500 podcast that he has downloaded. So, mm-hmm. and uh, by the way, I listen, I listen to a little bit more of Malcolm Gladwell's uh, uh, revisionist history. Yes. Oh, you yeah. need to listen to the new season. It's phenomenal. Oh, yeah. He's so good. It was, it's, this one's off to a good start. Well, uh, at Christianity Today, this article from a couple days ago, and it's just kind of a, uh, I wanted to talk about it because it brings up an important point, but it's a very sad story. It says how a reformed Facebook group's private comments turned into a public dispute. Why don't you tell us what's going on in this story? Why don't I, Brian? It begins by saying in an era when swift social media reactions and public repudiation, uh, oh boy, every time with this word repudiations offer an instantaneous form of rebuke and discipline. What role does the church have in holding its leaders and members accountable for online speech, which that alone is a great question and maybe a segment for another time. Uh, Amy Bird, 
has found herself at the center of this question. The author of Why Can't We Be Friends, Bird, uh, has come under fire from some within her Reformed theological tradition for her latest book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. The fight has largely played out on blogs and in private online discussions, but also has Bird and her critics, each calling for Orthodox Presbyterian Church, or OPC, yeah, you know me, sessions, uh, <laughs> church elders to take action. Two weeks ago, screenshots from a private Facebook group called Geneva Commons were posted on an anonymous website that described itself as, quote, an archive of reviling, cyberbullying, harassment, sexism, and racism among church officers and laypeople. Bird supporters have challenged the harsh comments within the Facebook group's uh, threads, including remarks that address her motives, appearance, and relationship with her husband. They've asked whether the leaders uh, responsible will be held accountable for the remarks. We are greatly concerned that officers of the church who have sworn to be accountable to their brethren in the Lord would attempt to hide behind a group that pledged itself to secrecy as if locker room talk could somehow be uh, exempted from the accountability of the church on the basis of an alleged right to privacy, read a statement signed by several dozen OPC pastors and elders. So I'm not all that familiar, actually, with the details of the story. I saw it kind of blowing up on on Twitter, yeah. I guess over the weekend, but um, it is a it's a pretty it's a pretty messy scenario and a in a much broader discussion that I I think the church needs to have, and I think is I'm I'm curious what what your perspective on all of this is. Yeah, it's ugly. Uh, Ed Stetzer wrote about it as well in terms of just the ugliness in that some of the prominent uh, women theologians, authors, pastors seem to face online. Uh, and that's re- uh, part of what this article is getting at. And there were two kind of tracks I want to take with it because the story itself is just ugly. And uh, the people who were commenting should be ashamed of themselves and should apologize. Um, but I-, I wanted to take it down two paths uh, and quickly uh, let's go to this one. Literally how the article ends. It says the opportunities to speak out and offer influence heap additional responsibility on Christian leaders. Just look at the warning of, quote, stricter judgment in James 3, followed by the instructions around taming the tongue, said Daniel Darling. And here's the quote he said, when you speak online, people are watching. We have to weigh our words. We forget that bearing false witness online is an actual sin. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about this disconnect. Do you sense this in people, a disconnect through like, uh, who I can be online uh, and these calls to watch your tongue and all of this stuff and that encompassing who we are in online. Darling here, right, says bearing false witness online is an actual sin. I sense that this is something that a lot of Christians uh, don't seem to actually live by right now. Don't what don't they seem to live by? Uh, that they've got to, that the same way you've got to be careful about what you verbalize, what you actually say, that the written, the typed word in the message boards, on the comments or whatever else needs to be held to that same standard. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think that there's a conscious decision to lower one's guard or standards online. I just think that people feel like it's a completely different space. So yeah. it's not a... I don't know that people are predominantly cognizant. Like now I'm going to really turn up the rudeness meter here because it's Facebook <laughs> and it doesn't matter. I think just because it in and of itself, it's a different kind of space. Like I love what Joe Thorne says, who we've had on the show, for, by the way, and he's wonderful. Right. He's a pastor of Redeemer Fellowship right here in Illinois. He talks about like leaders 
needing to do a better job of apologizing publicly and privately, just owning up to it. And it feels like for a lot of Christians online feels like Vegas. It's sort of like, Hey, no rules in Vegas. And what happens in <laughs> Vegas stays in Vegas. You know what I mean? Like, well put. Well well I put. just said it on Facebook. I just said it on Twitter, but you know, and I would, you know, I'd never say that in an elder meeting or a congregational meeting or, you know, at the dinner table, but uh, that disconnect, I imagine too, there's probably a deeper neurological study here too. Like why we know some of it, like we know that, for instance, when someone's at a concert, back when we had concerts, like if someone was filming the whole concert and watching the concert from their phone, um, we have good evidence that your brain actually doesn't really realize that you're there in person because you're watching mm-hmm. it through a screen. So there is some kind of physiological distinction, I think, when we're interacting with people online uh, that I, I do think people maybe struggle to actually see the connection, the integration into the entire the entirety of who they are, which is also a problem. I think we need to be more proactive, more cognizant of that. The other thing that I, f- I find tricky, especially among younger people, is you know a lot of those records now are permanent and um, it's impossible right. to really ever fully erase them. So future employers, especially people that you know want to work in ministry, like that kind of that kind of stuff, for, for no other reason, should at least we should give pause and caution before posting that rant or that mic drop moment or that hot take, you know what I mean? Like there's like this temptation to always be first and loudest. And I I don't think those are Jesus like qualities necessarily. Agreed. Uh, So unfairly with just two minutes left in this, uh, this segment, let me do ask you, uh, and I agree with you, it's going to require a larger conversation, but how would you answer their question? What role does the church have in holding its leaders and members accountable for online speech? I, I think the church, especially leaders, I mean, it's different. You know, we've, you and I have both had conversations about sometimes someone from your church posts something and you think, oh sure. man, but I, I think that is a discipleship question. I think it's a formation question. We've talked about the role of technology. Technology itself isn't good or bad, but it's not neutral. It is shaping us. It is forming us. And as pastors, we're not just simply to preach about some future salvation when we die. We're, we're talking about being an apprentice to Jesus about what is and isn't forming us and shaping us. And that idea of being a living sacrifice, that idea that Paul challenges us to not be conformed to the patterns of the world, but to be transformed. That's a, that's a spiritual formation, sanctifying kind of conversation. So I absolutely think accountability, especially of leaders, uh, needs to be, that's probably much more of a discussion that we'll see in the coming, I think probably months and years, especially since everything sort of found itself in a new digital reality. That's right. I think we seem to be touching on this topic often, but this whole idea of who am I online, uh, it, it matters. And um, and it's going to increasingly matter. And with election coming up and everything else going on in our culture, it's going to become harder and harder and, and more important for the church to take this seriously. So you can find this article up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, I want to take a look at a tweet that I read earlier that I think uh, a lot of us are going to resonate with. That's coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this hot and steamy Monday afternoon. Hope that you're doing well. Hope you had a great 4th of July weekend. Uh, but we're back at it. You remember, you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. You can find us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. That really does help us out a good bunch. 
before we jump into this tweet that I wanted to talk about, uh, Ian wants to share a word about one of our favorite sponsors, that being Thrivent. That is correct, Brian. Thrivent.com is a great place to start. They're a wonderful Fortune 500 non-for-profit. They've been around for more than 100 years. I'm a member, have been for a while. I'm just going to say this. Can't imagine my life without them. Is that too much? Is that Not too at much? all. Okay, great. But a couple other things, though, if you're looking for a career change or or even if you know someone who is looking for a career change, Thrivent.com slash careers has a whole bunch of opportunities and you don't have to have any kind of background in finance at all. You just got to love helping people, coming alongside people. So Thrivent.com, Thrivent.com slash careers. Plus, we're posting a bunch of stuff on our Facebook page because they have wonderful webinars and resources, whether you lead a business or you're homeschooling your kids. And uh, we are super, super grateful for them. Absolutely. Well, I was, ran across this tweet as I was going through Twitter this morning by Brian Zand. Uh, he is the pastor of Word of Life Church and then author uh, of a bunch of books. You know, you know, when you've authored a lot of books, when at the end of your Twitter handle of the list of your books, it just says, etc. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I couldn't fit them all in here, but uh, he's a good Twitter follower. And so I wanted to read his tweet uh, and let you respond to it. Here's what he said. Brian Zand wrote, We live in a moment when almost everyone feels weary and worn. Too much has come at us too fast. We're facing at least four crises at once, a public health crisis, an economic crisis, a political crisis, a racial justice justice crisis. And we still have to deal with our personal crises. We are weary and worn, in a second tweet he wrote after this. But to the weary and worn, Jesus says, come to me. The world is harsh, but I am gentle. The age is arrogant, but I am humble. The times are hard, but my yoke is easy. Come to me and I will give you rest. And he ends by saying, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, So kind of two parts there, what we're facing and what Jesus speaks to it. Uh, When you read this tweet, Ian, for the first time, uh, what parts of this do you resonate with? Well, it's I mean, it's definitely in line with how he often tweets. He is a great. He's a great follow. I know that for a lot of people, he's really controversial. He not only has written a bunch of books, but uh, he's one of the best modern bloggers in sort of the pastoral pastor theologian sphere, I think. But um, I know that there will be plenty already just by simply stating his name at all. Maybe would be inclined to tune out what he said, which I, I get. I totally get the impulse. I think what he's saying here is spot on. It's sort of an example yeah. of like, digital pastoring. He's he's kind of saying, hmm. hey, it's it's been a few months and it's easy for us to forget that there's a number of crises we're all navigating. I forget that. Like sometimes you just get so buried in, you know, whether it was towards the beginning of all this where our adrenaline was through the roof or now it's sort of like we've established some of these rhythms and this is just sort of our new norm, forgetting that this was not normal six months ago at all. That's right. That there's a whole lot going here. And obviously the the economic side, the political side, the racial side, will affect you different than me and you and I as white pastors different than other people. So like giving some grace for really realizing that everyone's navigating a a pretty, a pretty unknown, unknowable reality. And then for him to then in turn say, here's kind of how the message of Jesus intersects with what it is that we're all feeling. I think honestly, if I had to really distill it all down, I think, that is some of the best types of preaching to say, here's what we're experiencing. Here's how Jesus enters into that. Here's how Jesus addresses that. Like maybe conversely sermons that don't do that. I think in a lot of ways kind of miss the mark. And this is part of why I think he's such a good writer. 
think he's a great preacher. And I know that he's controversial. Maybe we can get into that another time. His story is wonderful, by the way. If you can ever listen to a podcast, he sort of explains his background and where he came from to where he's at now. Um, but I, yeah, I thought this was a good, this was Twitter at some of its better moments for sure. Yeah. Well, one thing I just learned from you there is, you know, the background of Brian Zand a lot more than I do. I didn't know much about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, don't, I do you, don't, see- you don't know that I know that. I just said that I do. You could call my bluff if you wanted. No, I, I think I believe it. I, I do see him retweet a lot, but I didn't know he was that bit of a lightning rod. But uh, do you agree with him that most of us, most people you come in contact right now are, quote, weary and worn? Do you think that's an accurate description of most people right now? I think so. But when I when I say that, though, I don't think weary and worn looks the same on everybody. I think some people are weary and worn uh, and they're aware of it, but they don't want anyone to see it. I think other people are weary and worn but haven't actually been given the tools to like identify it. So there's this like low grade anxiety or exhaustion or panic, but, but maybe, maybe don't actually know how to, how to address it or how to really reach some of those emotions. And then there are people that I think are just outright like, Nope, I'm, I'm physically, if you saw me right now, you could tell there's bags under my eyes. There's chunks of hair mist. Like I'm just, I'm stressed. I'm weary and worn. So yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're asking if most, I would, I would venture to guess more than 50% probably feel that way. Yeah. And he says again to the weary and worn, Jesus says, come to me. The world is harsh, but I'm gentle. The age is arrogant, but I'm humble. The times are hard, but my yoke is easy. Come to me and I will give you rest. And that concept of the rest that Jesus gives us, uh, we talk about that a lot, but pastorally, how would you, or how have you, uh, described what Jesus is talking about when he says, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and, and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. How do we describe that rest that Jesus gives us? Hmm. Well, you know, in that passage, he's talking about a yoke too, which is very common language for a rabbi to speak to a young apprentice about taking on a yoke. A yoke, of course, is a, um, it's like a wooden crossbeam that two cattle would have kind of strapped to their necks in, uh, in doing the work of plowing. And part of, I heard a commentator years ago say, part of what Jesus is saying here is that the yoke that you've been wearing doesn't fit. I have a yoke that fits, which is interesting because a yoke implies there's still work to do, right? Like he's, mm. he's not saying, hey, don't, no need to engage anymore. There's, he's saying, no, you're wearing a yoke that's like a burden on you. My, my yoke is easy and it fits. And I think part of the reason that it fits is because we're joined to Jesus in that. And I think that's part of what makes it easy. So when he talks about, giving rest, I think in a lot of ways, you know, he's, he's addressing a culture and a people that their understanding of a relationship with God was just this ever growing pile of rules. And, you know, you can look at some of these old manuscripts too, where like this, the center of the page was like the original command. And then all of the margins filled in with all these additional teachings about how we were to keep that command. He's like, man, you, oh. you're exhausting yourself trying to like play this religious game, trying to earn God's affection, try to get his attention um, that's not real rest. And that will always lead to exhaustion. I think the rest isn't just simply like some of the more obvious things like Sabbath, like time away, like turning off your phone. Yeah. But it is also like a, a mental psycho spiritual, like, Oh, this, I get to rest in this because ultimately my identity isn't found in like what I do or what I accomplish mm-hmm. or how high I climb the ladder. I think that kind of rest is, is just as important. Absolutely. Uh, 
So you can find that tweet. We've got it up on our Facebook page at the Common Good Radio Show. I, I've known you now for 16, 17 months, and I would have bet a lot of money you would have made a joke about you, you would have linked yoke and, 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 and joke. Like, I'm not yoking around here, but I'm, it's growth mm. on your part right there. I suppose. Mm, thanks. I, what does it say about you then? What is, <laughs> nope. It says that I was just waiting for it. <laughs> oh, I got you. Okay. Hey, coming up next, we're going to talk about an article at NBC News. It says coronavirus has left Americans unhappier. Uh, than we've ever been. We're going to discuss that and see if we believe that to be true. Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us here on this Monday afternoon. Uh, we're going to talk here in a second uh, about an article from NBC News that says coronavirus has left Americans unhappier uh, than ever. But before we do that, uh, I did want to talk about something that I just saw on Twitter just before we came on the air today. And it was a prayer request for uh, for Tony Campolo uh, from his son and daughter. And it reads this. It says, on the evening of June 20th, our father, Tony Campolo, had a stroke yeah. that partially paralyzed the left side of his face and body. Since then, he's been recovering and working on rehab on the ground floor of the Beaumont Health Center while his wife, who is prohibited from entering his room due to COVID-19, patiently sits outside his window for most of each day, talking with him and overseeing his care. And then it goes into a little bit more and asking people uh, to pray and if they know him to write cards uh, or whatever else. And I that struck me in, um, I don't know uh, the role Tony Campolo played in your life at all, but I feel like when I was in high school, I remember a very formative uh, kind of youth ministry conference I went to when I was a freshman or sophomore in high school where he was the main speaker. And it was really um, an important time in my life, what he said in that week. And then I remember at Wheaton, he came out for three days. They bring out special speakers for three days. Mm. Uh, I know a lot of people don't agree with Tony Campolo's politics. A lot of people do and his theology. Uh, but when I read this, it kind of uh, stopped me because Tony Campolo is somebody who not only have I enjoyed listening to, but I feel like played a pretty big role, uh, as big a role as a speaker can play in some formative times in my life. So I'm uh, going to be praying for him. What, what if any role has Tony Campolo played for you? Because you kind of came along at the same time as I did. Yeah, I remember reading a book that he did with Brian McLaren called, uh, I think it was called Adventures in Missing the Point or something like that. And they had sort of flip flopped. So they would each they would write a chapter and then the co-author would write a response to that chapter on like a, a various different controversial Christian notion. And I remember reading that, I think probably in college being really one impressed that they were tackling some of these topics that I didn't know a lot of people, you know, who were willing to go after them. And two, hmm. that they had such mutual respect for each other, even if they like really disagreed in print, right. like that made it to print like these Christians disagreeing intelligently, but thoughtfully and lovingly. And I thought, Oh man, I would I would love to see more of that in the world. So yeah, I'm a I I've been a I've been a fan of Campolo for a while. Absolutely. So be praying for him uh, as he recovers uh, from a stroke, uh, Tony Campolo. And uh, as we've both said, grateful for just the role that he doesn't know that he played in our lives, but uh, hearing him speak or reading his books at important times of our lives. Yeah. Uh, well, at the uh, at NBCNews.com, the headlines, this coronavirus has left Americans unhappier than ever. But here's why things are looking up. Let me begin. I'll read some of this and you can respond to it. It says American happiness has been eroding for years. 
Then the coronavirus happened. Americans are now less happy than they've ever been. It makes sense. The main pillars of happiness, social connections, physical health, income, and employment have all been threatened by the virus and by the actions taken to control its spread. Before that, erosion of trust in public institutions, weaker social connections, declining generosity, and growing inequality were all playing their part. While the U.S. ranked 11th among 156 countries in the 2012 World Happiness Report, published by the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network, it had fallen to 18th before the coronavirus pandemic. Now, a new survey looking at happiness post-coronavirus shows that Americans have never been in more despair. According to the COVID response tracking study uh, conducted by uh, NORC at the University of Chicago, only 14% of American adults are, quote, very happy, a huge drop from the 31% who answered that way just two years ago. Amid this troubling downturn is an even more troubling downturn. Like the income gap, the happiness gap has been growing between those at the top and those at the bottom. Mm. Prior to COVID-19, data from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development shows U.S. personal income inequality to have been among the highest of all major countries and the fastest growing. The 2016 World Happiness Report also showed that U.S. happiness inequality, a more encompassing measure of inequality, to also be among the highest and fastest growing among the industrial countries. And the 2020 World Happiness Report shows that the greater... uh, Sorry, lost my page there. Shows that the greater inequality of happiness tends to reduce average national happiness. So lots of stats there, lots of things to go over. Wondering, are you, is it like, yeah, of course, or are you surprised at all that happiness is eroding so much in their reporting in our country? I, yeah, I'm not surprised. I, I've uh, been interested in the topic of happiness for years now. There's a, a couple of really wonderful TED Talks that I think have helped frame some of, I mean, happiness in general is such a bizarre topic because it's something that I think the vast majority of us all want, but very few of us actually know how to get it or what it's supposed to look like. One of the TED Talks I remember in particular, there's a guy named Sean Aker and his whole premise, and he's, you know, was like a, a Harvard brain scientist or something and was saying how we are hardwired to move the goalpost anytime that we actually achieve the thing that we think will make us happy. So if it's a salary amount or a square footage or position in the company once once we get that thing it satisfies for like 0.3 seconds and then our brain just moves the goalpost now yeah. we need more money now we need a bigger house now we need to keep climbing the corporate ladder whatever whatever it is so the, this idea of this like i mean even think of the phrase the pursuit of happiness mm. <laughs> life liberty and then not happiness the pursuit of it, the chasing of happiness, like you're guaranteed, I guess, an opportunity to go after it, to chase it. First two, first two you can have the third, that one, best, best of luck. And I, I think that it, it does make sense for all the reasons and more. Honestly, I think that understandably, like not being able to gather and worship together, that's a huge player. We did a segment a couple of weeks ago about, I mean, some of the mental health ramifications of not being able to actually gather in person together. We, we see all sorts of controversies over what should be the best course forward. So not only are we dealing with uh, these economic issues and, and health scares and lack of physical connection, you add on top of that, every topic seems like it's some polarizing lightning rod. Every single discussion has people kind of at, at each other's throats about that topic, which to me only kind of furthers the tidal wave, the avalanche. Maybe that's a better analogy of unhappiness that I, I think a lot of people are understandably feeling right now. 
So what message or what can the church uh, speak to this? What is what is a message of hope or or do you think we're feeling the same thing uh, as Christ followers right now? You just keep reading Philippians. <laughs> Philippians mm-hmm. is a letter all about joy written from a prison. I just think I think it's one of the most beautiful applicable truths about how do we actually hold on to something like joy? How do we actually pursue and grow in joy even when our circumstances are anything but joyful? I think that's a really important spiritual discipline. I also think happiness is not as bad a thing as the church over the last 20 years has made it out to sound. A lot of scholars will assert that the word blessed actually could be better translated happy. So I, I don't actually hold the position like, oh, happiness is of the devil. You need to hold on to joy. I think they both can coexist in the life of a Christ follower. But Philippians, honestly, from I'm, I mean, I'm reading it today. Like it, it has been so helpful and so life giving, even though it's something that I've read a number of times. But I also think it is important to kind of take stock of like, what are the things that I've been going to for happiness? You know, I think mm. that beneath the surface in a lot of ways is like the nature of idolatry. It's putting the weight and expectation of God on anything other than God. And I think we all do that. We all, we do that in big and small ways. And I think getting honest with ourselves and, and maybe even just, I don't know, it's cheesy. Even things like starting the day with a gratitude journal, those little tiny choices, I think have bigger implications than we, than we might think. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's cheesy. I think it's helpful. And this article is going to go on to say uh, that there's some, uh, uh, a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel with the pandemic causing us to realize the happiness or the joy that we find at home with our kids and kind of getting out of the rat race. But uh, like you said, as Christ followers, I think that's a really helpful pointing us to the book of Philippians because uh, the same way, anytime we've taught that, you always have to set that setting and go, hey, Paul's probably chained to a wall here. <laughs> and he just keeps right. saying joy, joy, joy. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's, that, that causes us to wrestle. Well, uh, coming up next, Uh, The state of California has issued a ban on singing in churches. We're going to talk about that next and some other things coming up here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett. And me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities? And Thrive and Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour, a new ban out of California on singing in church, and then five lies preachers believe. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us again on this Monday afternoon. Hope you had a great 4th of July weekend. Summer is certainly in full swing as it's like... 
I don't know, 150 degrees outside right now, but hopefully you're having a great day. That is not an As accurate reminder, weather reporting, by the way, for someone that's in their house and they're really concerned. That's not, <laughs> they're not like, true. All these things are going wrong and now this. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, that other voice you hear is Ian and where he what he wants you to do right now is to go to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And there you can find articles that we've discussed or ones that we're about to discuss. And uh, you can do the same at Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can find us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is you find your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we are grateful for the many of you who have done that and uh, thankful that you do. Well, the state of California, Ian, as a little bit of background, they have been one of the states now that uh, that has started to see a real rise in coronavirus cases again. And near the end of la- last week, Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, he shut down, he, he took, I believe it was 70% of the counties in California and basically put them back down on quarantine, on lockdown. Yeah. Um, and as part of that directive, they issued a ban in churches amid, amid the pandemic on singing. Uh, And so the story goes like this. New COVID-19 guidelines in California forbid singing during worship services to prevent further spread of the virus. Issued Wednesday, the updated policies from the state's Department of Public Health require churches and other houses of worship to discontinue singing and chanting activities. Whereas official guidelines in late May permitted singing, group recitation and other practices and performances, but advised against them, such things are now formally uh, prohibited. So before I get your take on it, uh, let's listen uh, to a couple different perspectives from a segment on a California news station. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Tonight is Shabbat at Congregation B'nai Israel. Singing and chanting, a cornerstone of the service. It just would not feel the same if we were simply reading the entire service. Mona Alfie is the rabbi of the congregation. She says she understands the importance of health guidelines, including the new ban on singing and chanting in places of worship, which is why she leads socially distanced services online with no members in the synagogue. The way that we worship God best is by honoring each other. And the way we honor each other right now means keeping each other healthy and alive. Um, What's the point of praying if it's going to lead to somebody's hospitalization or, God forbid, their death? UC Davis professor Bill Ristenpart agrees with a singing ban. I think that's a very prudent measure. He studies the emission of expiratory aerosols, Uh, tiny particles you can't see by the naked eye, that carry virus. People don't think about this risk because they they don't see it, but it's there. And there's a lot of evidence now that COVID-19 is transmitted via these very small expiratory particles that you can't see but that you emit a tremendous number of when you sing. But at Crossroads Community Church in Yuba City, Senior Pastor Jim Clark says they won't be silenced. To be honest with you, I think it's ridiculous, personally. I really believe that it is stepping on the constitutional rights from the Bill of Rights on churches. Pastor Clark says they're taking precautions like distancing seats, checking temperatures and capping attendance at 25 percent. The church reopened for in-person service in May before it got the state's blessing. Pastor Clark says they're not waiting this time around either. We'll be singing 
uh, and praising the Lord. That's part of our worship. We feel like it's guaranteed by our Constitution. In Sacramento, Marley Martinez, KCR Ray 3 News. State health departments suggest churches have their members sing online from their homes. Rabbi Alfie says the synagogue will look into how the ban may impact their live stream. All right, Ian. So you've got kind of the background. You heard what they had to say. Uh, what are your thoughts when you first read about now this being a uh, a prohibition against singing in churches in California? Man, I don't I'm so torn on this one. I mean, obviously, the increase in restrictions was in response to the rising numbers, right? That's right. right. We can agree to that. Maybe not even everyone agrees with that. What would you say would be the opposing argument to even that statement? Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to give you the opposing statement, but I'm going to preface this by, I agree with you that this was in response, okay. <laughs> uh, to this, but I, there is a segment of people who think that the government is unfairly cracking down on worship, that they're using this as a chance to kind of go at religion again, not my belief. Uh, but I would say there are some people who see this as government overreach into churches. Okay. And, and that's a real thing. Government overreach. That's a very real conversation for sure. And I don't want to in any way imply, we've even done previous segments over the last year or so where we talk about, you know, persecution in the United States isn't anything like mm-hmm. what our brothers and sisters are experiencing across the planet. And while that's true, we have heard stories of people losing their jobs because of their faith. That's a very real thing. Overreach the thing. Right. All, all that said, um, there's just so little in the New Testament, where Jesus or Paul or Peter or the disciples give us examples of why we should be or how we should be fighting for our rights. Like that notion in the kingdom of God um, is tricky at best and maybe entirely mm-hmm. absent. Uh, and I think that when I when I think about the witness that is sometimes lost from Christians who want to elevate their desires over everyone else's at all costs, which I totally, I'm a pastor. Okay. So like, I love, 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 love (laughs) gathering with the body of Christ on a Sunday. And I miss it so much. Like it, I, it grieves me more than I thought that it ever could, to be honest. Like I'm so (laughs) frustrated and heartbroken that we haven't been able to gather together. Um, But if we're not, able to actually slow this thing down in these plates? Like, is it worth the increased risk to do the thing that we really want to do? Or is the way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, less about, I really want to do this thing, even if that thing is worship? What if it's more Philippians to look to the interests of others above your own? In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, how, how did that actually apply in the case of what some might perceive as a government overreach. I don't actually know. That's a really, that's a good question. That's a tricky one for sure. But um, yeah, I'll just stop there before I get myself into more trouble. Yeah. I think you've done a good job at, at crafting what the argument is out there. Cause you're right. Like it's part of the DNA of meeting in a church is singing. Let's just be honest. And so in many ways, probably for these churches, it feels like if we can't sing, we can't meet. And there's even some, stuff about how many people like, can they do singing even online and what does that even look like um with a minute or so we have left and this is probably unfair to you but what about the argument that says man we just had weeks and weeks of protests 
of people yelling and screaming, being in close proximity. And now you're telling me we can't worship. Do you think there's some validity to that? Or is it like, hey, now there's more of an outbreak. We just got to tackle what's going on now. Yeah, I, I, I think there probably could be some validity to that. I just think, again, doesn't that in a little in a, in a, in a small sense sort of sound like, well, you gave him a cookie. I want a cookie. Like it feels <laughs> like like what I imagine my boys might sound like 10 years from now. It doesn't mean that they're they're not legitimate. Um, but I, I, again, I just want to, I want to ask the deeper question, the thing behind the thing. Y- yes. I want to be gathered and singing yeah. and worshiping and serving. I want all of that. Um, but does, does scripture give us instructions about how we're actually to submit to authority unless they're asking us to sin or to do something, you know, that is sinful. Like I, I think apart from that, I don't know, man, like that to me seems like this is a good opportunity for us to model Christ-like love, even when, all of the decisions that are being made frustrate us to no end. That's, that, that is true. And, uh, you know, we're praying and hoping that Illinois doesn't go backwards, but this might be something we face down the road again. Uh, so it's worth th- thinking about. We would love for you to comment on this at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, we're going to hear an audio clip from uh, Dr. Ben Carson and then have a little discussion about it. That's next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us on this Monday afternoon. Ian, if if we wanted people to find us in various places online, what comes to top of your mind? Where might they find us? Oh, let's see. What is your website again? I love dairyqueen.com, I think. Is that the- <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to see if that domain's available. No? Okay. <laughs> In all seriousness, a couple of things. You can go to the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. You might not realize we post articles there. You can send us messages, not only just to say howdy, but you can uh, make suggestions for future shows, links, articles, topics, people to interview. All that's fair game. Plus, you can review that page. That not only helps us out, but it warms our heart. And uh, I guess there's a couple other places they can find us, Brian. Any other? Any others come to mind? I mean, there's a podcast. That, Ooh, boy. Uh, they, they they can get wherever wherever they get their podcast they they can find it uh they can write you a letter i think you'll write them back that's you'll, true yeah you'll sit down you'll you'll pen a, a, even a poem maybe for them i think that'll work i got it's my quote right here <laughs> could you tell i watched hamilton over the weekend yeah and uh uh so anyway in all seriousness find us at all these different places listen to the podcast we are grateful for the common good community that is built over these last 16 or 17 months uh, we certainly do not take it lightly. Well, at Fox News over the weekend, uh, a a segment with Dr. Ben Carson, uh, who is uh, in uh, President Trump's administration, uh, and he went uh, he did an interview in which the the interviewer on Fox News was basically asking him about Black Lives Matter and about uh, the saying Black Lives Matter versus the movement. And you and I have talked a lot about this. But uh, before we talk about this, I want you to hear what Dr. Ben Carson had to say. Let's bring in Dr. Ben Carson, HUD secretary, uh, joining us now. Um, Dr. Carson, always good to have you with us. You know, w- with this, with regard to this question of the, the foundation of Black Lives Matter, and when you hear, you know, them talk about their Marxist ideology, that they're proud of that Marxist ideology, you know, do you are you concerned about that extending into the broader part of the movement that you see, you know, on people's T-shirts and everything else. Do you think that there's a danger that emanates from that? 
Well, we're really talking about two different things. Uh, you know, do black lives matter? I think everybody would agree that they do. Uh, but we're talking about something else when we're talking about a movement that espouses things like, you know, taking down the model of Western family structure, talking about defunding the police. And there are a host of things on their website, uh, the Marxist uh, influence. Mm -hmm. These are things that are antithetical to the American model and to patriotism in this country. So I think there are a lot of innocent and good people who think Black Lives Matters just means, you know, we should be taking care of our black citizens and making sure that they're not discriminated against. Absolutely. And that's noble and laudable. Yeah. But we have an organization that is taking advantage of the fact that people don't really know what's behind a Marxist-driven organization. Great point. You know, with regard to, um, you know, what sort of can be said and not said when you talk about Black Lives Matter, this is um, a tweet from Terry Crews, who said, if you're a child of God, you are my brother and sister. I have family of every race, creed and ideology. We must ensure hashtag Black Lives Matter doesn't morph into hashtag Black Lives Better. Um, that becomes a controversial statement in today's environment. What do you say to that? Well, interestingly enough, you know, one of the heroes of everybody of our history is Dr. Martin Luther mm -hmm. King. And what did he advocate for? A colorblind society. Yeah. He said, I dream of a time when people will be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Here we are putting everything in the context of color of skin, of external characteristics. And as I've said before, those things don't really matter at the same way as your brain does. You know, when I open up somebody's head and I'm operating on their brain, there is nothing in there that says this is a black person or a white person or a yellow person or a brown person. And that is the thing that actually makes you who you are. And as we divide ourselves, we allow ourselves to be divided we are destroying the very fabric of our nation. This is called the United States of America. And this is what we need to think about. You know, and instead of trying to tear down our history, maybe what we need to be doing is adding to our history. Let's, let's put some statues up of, of Booker T. Washington, George mm -hmm. Washington Carver, Elijah McCoy, who invented the automatic lubrication system for locomotive engines. People tried to always copy his stuff, and people would say, is that a McCoy? Is that the real mm -hmm. McCoy? He's an African-American inventor. There's a lot of things that we can be putting up and make sure that everybody feels that they're included in the yeah. development of this great nation of ours. That's a great idea. Before I let you go, the, the phrase symbol of hate that the president tweeted about the Black Lives matter paint uh, that's going down right now in front of uh, City Hall downtown. Um, was that a mistake on his part to, to call it that or not? Well, I, I guess the, the larger question is when you're in a public forum, a public square, do you have the right to put on there, you know, a political statement? Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder what people would say if somebody painted a Confederate flag on a public street. So we really need to take into consideration those things. On, on private property, 
absolutely do whatever you want. This is a, a free country. But we have to recognize that when we put political symbols on public property, we have to take responsibility for that. All right. Dr. Ben Carson, as always, good to have you here tonight. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Martha. All right. So that's Dr. Ben Carson on the Black Lives Matter uh, as a saying and as a concept versus a movement. I'm wondering if you found that helpful. Any of his points stick out to you, Ian? Oh, my gosh. You're just trying to get me in trouble today. I, um, <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm not. <laughs> OK, I, I posted something a couple of weeks ago about this idea about the phrase versus the organization. And yeah. that I mean, I caught some heat for that. But then you did. Okay. Then there's some other comments. Um, it was interesting. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Scott Sauls a lot who talks about, you know, Jesus would have upset both the right and the left. I did that yeah. with that one post, actually. So really? Yeah. Okay. That felt, I guess sort of successful. Not really. But part of the comments were like, yeah, but don't don't think, Ian, that your responsibility is to like to tell people of color what their narrative actually means or what they actually need most, you know, and I, I, I see what they're saying for sure. I was really trying to speak to brothers and sisters that were hesitating to say it at all because of what the organization and on all the things they have on their Facebook page and on their website. I, I can't affirm the statement because people will assume I'm like linked to the organization. That's right. you, you can, you can just affirm the statement though, as a, as a pastor, as a Christian person. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think, I think I'm going to stop there. What did you What did you think of Ben Carson's comments? Yeah, I, and this is a healthy spot just to to remind people that sometimes you and I, and I'm not necessarily even saying it with this with this audio, but we put up articles or uh, comments by people yeah. that we may or may not agree with. Like sometimes I think we get ourselves in trouble because people think if we talk about it, we agree. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I, this could be one of those times. I do think it's an important conversation and one that I wanted people to wrestle with because it's, I hear it so often, either people wanting to discredit any of the movement that's going on right now for social justice by saying, Oh, have you read the black lives matter uh, webpage? No, but, and, and they want to kind of pop a balloon um, sure, right. or the other way. And I do think that this is an area where it's okay to have some nuance and some gray and, and land on, I can disavow myself from the organization while still saying black lives matter and uh, not just saying it, but working to affirm that uh, culturally. And so are there things that Ben Carson said that, that I wouldn't sign on to? Sure. Are there things that he said that I agree with? Sure. And I think that's what we're trying to do on this show. And so I do think, um, I would just caution people to be like, well, because the organization is something I don't agree with, therefore I'm going to throw everything out with it. I don't think that is helpful. Well, yeah. And I, and I don't think that, I mean, maybe this is a whole other discussion. I don't think the goal is to become colorblind at all. Maybe, maybe we could dedicate a segment to that sometime. We should. Yep. Yeah. That, that's that, that I think is an important distinction to make. Absolutely. I don't think that is helpful. So I will do that another time for sure. Well, we'd love to know what you think. Remember, you can find it on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, Ian and I are both pastors and preachers, and we found an article that says five lies preachers believe. We're going to see if we believe these. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us once again today. 
Uh, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, online, 1160hope.com, podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review, all sorts of different places that you can find us. Well, as you know, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, Ian and I, are, our main jobs is that we are both pastors, and as pastors, we regularly are preaching. Uh, and with that, it caught our eye at churchleaders.com, this article, uh, five lies that preachers believe about preaching. I'm worried about this because I'm worried that I'm going to believe all of these. So, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Written by Marty Duran over at Church Leaders, five lies preachers believe about preaching. Ian, why don't you get us into this? Okay, so a couple of things. One, this feels uh, a little on the nose because, as I was mentioning to you off air, I actually just recorded the message for this Sunday this morning. So our new schedule, <laughs> we're recording the messages on Monday mornings. And that's to allow more time for editing and production so the team isn't having to to rush and scramble. So I, I literally just pre it's a very weird feeling because I I just preached it. I I didn't <laughs> feel great about it. And now I have all week to worry about it before it actually goes live on Sunday and then watch it six times with everybody and point out all my mistakes. That's really so funny. so that's that's extra tricky. Um I will say this, a couple of things. The photo they chose has a guy wearing the microphone, strangely, that's that to me is an odd choice. And then um, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, out of all the photos you could have used, that's the one you're going with. And then I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't love how this begins. Either pastors suffer from an abundance of unsolicited advice about preaching. Many not called to preach think themselves the most gifted to critique. Mm. Despite this, there are few church members more critical to preaching than the one who delivers the sermon. Already feels a little defensive. No. Yeah, a little snarky, snarky yep. which yep. I'm no stranger to snark, but, and then he gets into talking about, um, you know, like his spouse asking, how do you think it went? Most of my responses are usually in the, I guess it went all right vein, followed by how did you think it went? Uh, that's definitely almost verbatim conversation I've certainly had with my wife. I don't know if you ever, I remember hearing a preacher years ago talk about how someone came up to him on a Sunday afternoon, like, hey, do you want to know what I think of your sermon? And he said, yes tomorrow <laughs> we're like yep i totally understand that like i want the feedback it is a little tender and raw right now and i think that's true also before i forget a quick plug stephen carter's brand new podcast craft and character is all yeah. about the art of preaching i just listened to the first one with john mark comer it is oh, phenomenal wow. it's phenomenal it's so good it's about the craft of preaching and then like the, the character of the preacher man oh man they're just a couple episodes deep so far but that's one to watch, man. It's awesome. Okay. That's enough ranting. Are we all out of time now? Here we go. No, we got um, it. We're good. It's only a list of five, so we're good. Okay. Phew. All right. These are five lies preachers believe about preaching. Lie number one, if I just preach the Bible, my church will grow, right? Churches grow or don't grow for any number of reasons. Good location, good organization, and an overwhelming move of the Spirit of God or a charismatic leader are some possible reasons. Churches almost never grow solely because of the preaching. Conversely, churches almost never stay small or plateau as a result of the preaching. So that's more to like address the pastor that is maybe putting too much weight and gravity on what happens from the pulpit. Is that, right. is that kind of your read on that one? It totally is. And I'm guilty of that. And I think one reason we're often guilty of that is because that's what we have the most control over. Yeah, <laughs> like, right, right. If, sure. I could just, if I could just nail this, then people are going to come, you know, they're, they're just going to stream into the back door, but uh, it rarely happens that way. Well, number two, uh, if I study and pray enough, I will always get God's mind on the sermon text. 
Uh, we all approach the scripture with certain biases. They are all, they are not always erroneous, but they can cause the preacher to mistake an interpretation or application. I remember a well-known pastor saying, one Sunday night I preached a sermon on why the Antichrist has to be Jewish. After the service, a member graciously approached me with a few scriptures. The next Sunday night I preached on why the Antichrist has to be a Gentile. Oh, boy. Uh, there's a reason. It's a big one to get wrong. Yeah, why uh, is that a sermon in the first place? Or two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. There is a reason Paul calls us jars of clay. The treasure is priceless and eternal. The container is aging, chipped, and fading every day. The word has enough power to overcome the frailty uh, of the one delivering it. When you mess up a text, admit it and move on. If you have not landed on particular interpretation out of three, preach them all. I don't know about that. And let the spirit do his work. But anyway, you're not going to be perfect when you preach. You're going to get it wrong sometimes. (laughs) Oh, man, I want to spend more time on this one. If I study and pray enough, I will always get God's mind on the sermon text. Uh, I don't even know if that's all right. We'll come back to it. (laughs) We got to get to the list at least. Uh, Number three. There is a single best way to preach. Uh-oh. Uh, whether a pastor preaches exp- uh, ex- oh boy. expositorily or topically. There's the word. Is not typically the reason the church grows. It is humorous how often I see a pastor advocate for ex- expository preaching as a key to church growth when his own church is not growing. Both history and our contemporary setting provide numerous examples of Christians growing in the faith and churches increasing in number under different styles of preaching. I'm going to stop right there. He's linking how we are to approach the pulpit with whether or not it makes the church grow. I don't think I love that either. I'll finish the paragraph. He says, I prefer expository preaching for a number of reasons, but I'm not inclined to limit the work of God to a single style. Preach with confidence from the gifts that God has given you. Okay. Hmm. I like the ending of that better than I was previously. I'll let you go. I'll stop. I'll stop. Number four. Uh, I'm the worst preacher in the world. Uh, I don't know who anyone who thinks themselves the best, and I hope no one believes about themselves the worst. Every pastor has a bad day, an off Sunday. Chances are on my any given Sunday, all of us are the worst preacher in the world. We are fallible. We all have grand slams in the study turned into strikeouts in the pulpit, but most neither hit it out of the park, nor I like the baseball stuff here, nor foul it into the stands week after week. We do well to remember that a string of singles or double scores a lot of runs as well. I think we all struggle with this. You walk out of the pulpit like, why did I even plan this week? (laughs) Yeah, 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 I've definitely been there. I'm also really looking forward to having the soundbite of Brian just going, I'm the worst preacher in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to use that sometime in the future. Uh, Okay. And number five, lies preachers believe a lack of audible feedback equals a lack of hearing. Hmm. Congregations are different. Some say amen or preach it quite a lot, which I love, by the way. Most pastors love this. Oh, there it is. For some communicators, audible feedback is the connective tissue of receptivity, but not all congregations are comprised thus. Some are more reflective. Again, I don't, why, why do we have to pit responsive and reflective? Well, whatever. Among our people uh, are auditory, visual, and experiential learners. Attention is given in different ways. I rely on body language for feedback more than amens. Is anyone asleep? That's that's a good indication, I guess. Are people checking their watches? Has a conversation broken out in the fifth row? The fifth row, that is bold. Uh, Has anyone closed their Bibles and moved on to Facebook? Conversely, our eyes facing forward, are they alert? Are notes being taken? Are there nods or heads shaking at appropriate places? Are students engaged? One of our campuses 
has light dimmers for the auditorium, our lighting techs always make sure the lights are bright enough for me to get the visual cues I need to read mm. as much body language as possible. I'll let you read this last paragraph there. It says, Pastor, neither exalt yourself more highly than you ought, nor think more badly about preaching than you should. You may not be as good as you wish, but you probably are not as bad as you fear. Work to improve the craft of preaching and trust God for his blessing on it. Faithfully teach the word for it has the power and do not believe enemy lies that will haunt your soul and hollow your preaching. I think, uh, you know, I could take or leave a lot of those, but I think that last paragraph is really helpful. Like a lot of times we'll beat ourselves up or think it's all on us when really, uh, you know what? keep working at it. It's something you grow in. God still uses, sometimes God has used the sermons that I think are the worst. And some of the things that I think I killed were just, just fall flat. So that I think is helpful. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely agree with you, Brian. We have made a joke about offering like an after hours, common good, like Patreon podcast where I'll share my actual thoughts on this article. So <laughs> <laughs> look for that in the future where Brian and I come unhinged and really talk about it. Now, there are definitely certainly some nuggets that were in there. And I think your call to ultimately remember what's most important, I think is, uh, I think it's a really good one. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show with a, with a story that I found out of the news last week, both inspiring and challenging. That's going to come up next year on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent, where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of peaked with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began, because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you're having a good Monday. If any of the things we've talked about, uh, any of the articles or audio clips, if you want to go give them a read yourself, you could do so at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, and also, uh, you can find us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Grateful for those of you who do that. Uh, Ian, I didn't warn you about this, but let's. I, I would actually like to end the show before we talk about this one last story, hearing something about Thrivent. Oh, gosh, Brian, you didn't warn me. Whatever will I say about yep. Thrivent? Well, for starters, they're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit. It's been around for more than 100 years. I would also probably tell you Thrivent.com is a great place to check it out. Maybe look at action teams. That's one of my favorite things that they do. Also, though, if you're looking for a career change or a career in general, Thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to look. Maybe send it to a friend. You don't have to have any background in finance whatsoever. You just got to love helping people. And that is one of the things that I think they do best 
to the point almost when I first started working with them, I was skeptical. <laughs> and they have just time and time again over the last eight years exceeded my expectations. We're also sharing a bunch of their stuff on our Facebook page, webinars and resources. So anyway, like their page, go to thriving.com or thriving.com slash careers. Awesome. Well, I wanted to end the story, uh, end the show today with a story uh, that was in the news last week. So let me just tell the story and, uh, and then I would love your feedback on it. It is the story of uh, two people. One of them, the well-known person is one of the greatest uh women's basketball players of all time. Her name is Maya Moore. Maya Moore uh, won multiple national championships at the University of Connecticut and Player of the Year awards. Uh, She has won four WNBA championships and an MVP award uh, with the Minnesota team of the WNBA. When when Maya Moore was a freshman at the University of Connecticut, uh, she was part of a prison ministry and there met somebody by the name of Jonathan Irons. Jonathan Irons, at the age of 18, was sentenced to 50 years in prison on charges of burglary and assault. And from the beginning, Jonathan Irons said, I wasn't there. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Uh, And most people who looked at the case said, yeah, this is a total miscarriage of justice. Uh, This isn't right. And Maya Moore got to know him, became friends with him. And a year ago or a year and a half ago, Maya Moore felt so strongly about this that uh, she retired or at least put on hold her basketball career. Uh, And she said, I'm not going to play basketball anymore, at least until uh, Jonathan Irons has had his day in court and hopefully will will have been released. And so she did that. She stepped away from the court. And Maya Moore then uh, formed a group or was a part of a group that worked tirelessly on Jonathan Irons' behalf. So why tell this story now? Because last week, you may have seen a clip of this, Jonathan Irons was released from prison. He, the mm-hmm. court said, yeah, no, he's innocent. And he was uh, released from prison uh, after it looks like about 20 to 22 years of a prison sentence. Uh, and when he came run, came out, his family was there, other people were there, but My- Maya Moore and others were there waiting for him. And it was on uh, the news. They showed the clip of this. and. Uh, Maya Moore ran up and hugged him. And in the interview afterwards, uh, Jonathan Irons talked about his gratefulness for Maya Moore. He talked about her being like a sister to him now uh, and all of this stuff. And what struck me, and part of this was because this week I was preaching this past Sunday on Micah chapter six, verse eight. uh, And Maya Moore, while doing this interview, is wearing a T-shirt. And the T-shirt simply says this, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. It just says, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, which is straight out of Micah chapter six, verse eight. And there are so many parts of this story uh, that just were both inspiring and challenging, Ian. But but the one, as we talk a lot about, you know, what can we do about injustice or about things we're passionate about? Here's somebody who just put her literally her money where her mouth is and said, Everything that gives me fame and notoriety, like this is more important. And this doesn't mean everybody needs to quit their jobs or whatever else it might be. Uh, But the level she went to to provide justice for another person, uh, I found both really inspiring and really challenging. I don't know if you'd heard this story and if you did or if this is the first time you heard it, kind of what is your reflection upon it? Yeah, I, I had heard it and I, I gotta be honest, I'm, I'm torn on this one too. Cause as you mentioned, it, it is an inspiring story for obvious reasons. Yep. It's also an incredibly heartbreaking one. It's one it 
and we've maybe not dedicated enough time on the show to talk about this. We've talked a little bit about prison reform. We talked a little bit about some of that, particularly in light of COVID, but like, oh, I'm reading these two articles that, that you posted in our rundown too. And I'm thinking that is so frustrating at the very least. And I like what she says here. She says, it's not a cause. It's not as much a cause to me as it is a real person story. Like remembering that it's not it's not just some like theoretical topic that we're talking about being for or against or excited about or not having energy for. Like I think that's part of what made her successful is like seeing the humanity, the real story component of it. But she goes on to say, I definitely see myself having purpose in this criminal justice space because unfortunately there's so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. Now, again, people listening might disagree on what that work needs to be or should be or what it actually looks like. But I think stories like this are a a painful and yet, I guess, inspiring reminder of like some of the infrastructures that are still in place that still Mm -hmm. affect and harm people in ways that maybe, you know, you or I necessarily wouldn't ever think of. I guess you could say it's inspiring in a result, like uh, the inspirational part is in response to the infuriating part. <laughs> and right, the part right, that, exactly. He's uh, just about, because you're right, this guy, don't lose sight of the fact that he sat in prison for over 20 years for something he ultimately was proven not to have done. Right. Um, and, uh, but, but the work that she did, I found there just to be um, a lot of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? takeaways, if you will, for lack of a better word, for the church and for us as Christ followers. Like, are we willing to do the long work to fight against injustice? Yeah. Like, my more just she sacrificed a lot. Uh, yeah. And this isn't ultimately about her, but, you know, she gave notoriety to the story because, um, you know, there's been a lot of there's been a fever pitch right now about what's the church going to do to fight this or that. And the question is, is there staying power, particularly for the white church? Uh, whether it be um, issues around race or, or other injustice issues, prison reform, things that you said. And I fa- that's where I found this challenging is not just the level of dedication, but the level of investment that just says, nope, I'm, all, I'm pushing my chips to the table here and I'm all in. Uh, there is something, I think, for all of us as Christ followers uh, to really learn about the work and the, the stick-to-itiveness uh, of being when we say we want to be part of the solution to justice. Well, and yeah, I think the solution is a really important call, but even like reading the story about a 16 year old living in poverty, convicted of this in 98 saying that weeks later, hesitant, uh, they picked them out of a lineup. There's no witnesses, no physical evidence pointed to irons at all. Crazy. Like that should not only want to say, Oh, we got to find a solution. That should also like do something to our heart. I think like mm. that, that kind of, that kind of sentencing um, should make us mad, I think, too. And I think that's an, yeah. they need to go part and parcel. They need to go hand in hand. That's a good point. That's a good point. Well, we want to end the show, end the show with that story. And uh, you can find it up on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. If you want to see the video clip of when Jonathan Irons is finally released from prison, uh, it is up there. Well, we're really glad that you joined us today. The week is off to a good start. Thanks for joining us today here on The Common Good. We'll be back at this from 4 until 6 p.m. again tomorrow. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.